0: Welcome to the Kini Interviews. Through this series, you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together, we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Kini is the Malaysian word for current, and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector. Hello, and welcome to the second interview in the Kini Interview series. My name is Karen Delfo, and today I am interviewing Brad Mogridge. Brad is from the Camillaroy Nation in northwest New South Wales, Australia, and Brad is from a large and proud extended family. He grew up in western Sydney, and he now lives in Canberra. Brad is currently a doctoral researcher at the University of Canberra, and he is also the Indigenous Liaison Officer at the National Environmental Science Program Threatened Species Recovery Hub. In this interview, we discuss the diversity of Aboriginal knowledge, the meeting point between traditional and scientific knowledge for water management, how to develop credible evidence to back up traditional knowledge and have it accepted in the mainstream academic literature, and opportunities for bringing Aboriginal people and Indigenous people into the research process. I hope that you will enjoy listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed conducting it with Brad, and as always, there are additional resources available at kinney.org.au, including notes and links to topics that we discuss in this and every interview. Thank you and enjoy! i much for joining me just this morning for you, this afternoon for me, to discuss uh, Indigenous cultural values and to discuss your path and your work. As a leading water practitioner, In Australia and and internationally I'm wondering if we could get started by just kind of you giving a brief introduction to yourself I just read on LinkedIn that you are the 2013 men's Australian indigenous golf champion and that is amazing (laughs) is there is there really is there an annual um, golf championship with indigenous people men and women that come together and just get out on the greens and hit it yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah it's um it's been around for a while actually. Like uh that was a that was a great honour to actually win that one. And it was at it was in Canberra, so it was sort of just in my backyard which was nice and could go home to the family. But they yeah, they have it around Australia all the time every year. Um it moves around and um when it's obviously interstate it's a bit challenging to get away, but maybe now with my new sort of situation I might be a chance to get to some more of these and start playing a bit more golf, but it was yeah it's funny because in 1987 i was um i played in the nationals so they they've been around for a while i don't i'm not actually sure when they, sure when they had when they actually started uh, so this is 1987. i was well, what was i 15 played in it i came runner up in the junior section and um we then went to the presentation like this was in sydney and uh, we had presentation and um uh, oh, I've got a mental blank. Charlie Perkins, rest his soul, came, was was at the presentation and he um, spoke, you know, started awarding the prizes and then at the end called all these names up and mine was one of them and one of those and he said he was sponsoring a team of Indigenous Australians to go to Hawaii to play the native Hawaiians. So wow. in 1987, I yeah went to Hawaii and as a 15-year-old and, played golf in Hawaii and we played the Indigenous Hawaiians and that was, you know, there was just massive celebrations and parties and luau's and it was was awesome. So that was a, and that was that day I finished my school certificate in year, well it was year 10, so, and then the next day I flew out to Hawaii, so that was cool. And then to, yeah, and then to win it in 2013, so that was, that was even better, Yeah.
0: So when you're not playing golf, and you just mentioned transitions, um, what have you been up to? <laughs> um,
1: still trying to work out what I want to be when I grow up, but um, I uh, I suppose water is my thing, and Aboriginal knowledge and connection to water. It's sort of that that connection started early uh, for me anyway. Uh, learning some of the old stories from from our old people was was an honor and i suppose learning some of the special places and a lot of these special places was were linked to water or around water and then when you start thinking about that connection to water you know it's the driest inhabitant on earth and we have one of the oldest living cultures on the planet and i suppose we aren't part of that that equation on when and where water flows on this continent. And, I, and that's a challenge I set myself, was to try and influence that somehow. And, you know, through university courses and positions that I've held, I suppose that's that's the main thing I've, I've kept on track to do, is to try and, well, I suppose infiltrate the system and try and work on the inside. And that's that's the path I chose, you know, other people... May choose different paths, but you know that's my path that I saw. I could make an impact, and if I can maintain that path to impact, I'm doing my bit. You know, we, you're not, you're not around for a long time. You know, a thousand years, a hundred years, man. Um, but you know, I suppose when you're on Earth, you have got to do your best to make a difference, and I suppose leave, leaving a legacy for the kids and honouring the Our past as well drives me.
0: Uh, You spoke about, as a a young one, going around with the the elders in your community and visiting water sources and experiencing water. Is is that where your passion for water originated? And can you share a story about when it kind of hit you, I guess?
1: Um, It was probably... It was probably high school. Like I took an interest in science through through high school and got to always you know, I lived in Sydney, so I was my traditional lands are about uh from Sydney they're about six hundred kilometers, seven hundred kilometers away. So it wasn't just that easy to go and visit, but you know, in school holidays or well, Dad was a, actually a sales rep, so he used to do a lot of country trips. So we'd go on country trips with him as well, as kids, and we'd hang out with the family. And uh, so you know, there's when I say family, like the extended family. So mum, on yeah, that's the Aboriginal side. You know, it's a large family. So there's four. She's got thirteen brothers and sisters. So there's um, yeah. So it's a, it's a big family. There's a lot of cousins, a lot of you know cousins, kids, and. I think we we lost Nan this year in January, so she was going to be 90, 90, 98 this year. She would have been just in November, but we lost her in January, and um, yeah, Sorry she, she just we just yeah yeah it was pretty tough, but it we just missed out on six generations being alive.
0: Wow, that's, that's sorta, incredible.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. So. While she was around, you know, we had five generations for a long time. So it was, you know, grandparents, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. And, you know, there was a great-great-great born just after she passed. So that was unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, so, Incredible. Um, you know, like there's – there would have been – we did a count oh, love, over the years and I think we had over – 250 descendants just from her and pop so you know there's a there's a lot of us so you know there was always there's always you know there's a lot of relatives i've never met you know cousins kids kids (laughs) so that's sort of scary (laughs) um but it's yeah we always had people to hang out with and uncles and aunties but it but it was just being on country you know we used to go out to to some of the waterholes where you know nan went and grandparents went and uh, mum's generation went so it was connection with water in 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 those sort of places was important and then later on you know i found a place called boober lagoon which was highly significant and you know it's we we call it one of the most significant cultural places on in australia you know but someone might say well that isn't that uluru but, it, but i suppose it's when you think about the the diversity and and differences between Aboriginal nations and language groups in Australia. You know, that every, a lot of these places exist in the landscape, these culturally significant, and a lot of them evolve around water because being in a dry landscape. So I suppose that's <clears throat> one of those, that story of Bubba Lagoon uh, excited me a lot as well. So I was, um, I got to, to research it, got to visit it. And uh, while I was doing my Masters in groundwater. I, you know, I got to speak some of the elders and as water places. That was that was really awesome. And I suppose that's just sort of kept me on a path to try and do something in water, uh, make a difference. And you know, the roles I've had in CSIRO and uh, then DPI Water recently in the, leading the only Aboriginal audience in the country. You know, I suppose I was I've stayed on that path. And I think now with this new transition of doing a, a doctorate in water and Aboriginal people, I suppose I'm going to I'm going to stay on this path for a while to come yet.
0: Yeah, and you've spoken about infiltrating infiltrating these values and this connection into Australian policy and into I think all the management infrastructure of which there is oh so very much in Australia to yeah. manage water, and um, how, how has that been going? Because you, you've really been a leader in that space and a voice for the water and someone that a lot of people who've researched have looked to and looked up to, um, but I know that it hasn't been an easy journey and the journey is only just beginning.
1: Yeah, I, yeah I, it's funny. You've got some of the oldest knowledge, and it's, it's, it's old business for Aboriginal people dealing with water, but I suppose it's – it's a new journey for uh, Western paradigms and Western science and Western policy to to actually deal with an old an old knowledge system. So, and that's hard because science needs validation and you need to test it and retest it and get the you know same result. But I suppose with traditional knowledge, it's hard for us to validate our knowledge. And I suppose me referencing my my ancestors knowledge or a dreaming story i can't reference it in a western science journal because i don't have a, a reference i don't have a reference point you know what i mean so that i found that really difficult and you know i can't go to the the pure science journals i've got to go to you know a less something that'll accept that sort of thing you know a you um, social sciences or, or something like that. But I suppose it's, that's a challenge that I'm, I'm happy to, to take on. And I suppose, you know, if I can research some of our old knowledge and get same, same or better results as Western science, you know, there's, there's some sort of validation. But that's always been the challenge is that, is that we, our, our knowledge, you know, our, our old people's knowledge, Just doesn't fit in and it's hard for Western science to accept that but for us it's as I said it's old business because it's been tested it's been it's we're still here so I suppose it has worked
0: yeah (laughs) I mean it's it's like do you think that there's an opportunity for the Western science science paradigm the peer review process everything that you deal with to get something you know in the literature Do you think that there's a way to kind of crack that a little bit to make space for this kind of knowledge? Because it really does clash with the whole worldview of what is knowledge, in a sense, from that academic perspective. It's it's a tricky question, but...
1: Yeah, it is. And, you know, I suppose it's, it's not only the water space, but when you think about fire ecology... In, in Australia in itself you know like the ecologist might say now's the time to burn but traditional knowledge might say no 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 this is the wrong time to burn and then you get that clash of you know so there the ecologists may say that you know that's it's the right time and then you've got as I said you know the, the knowledge that says no 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 it's the wrong time so because a certain plant hasn't flowered or we haven't seen this species to tell us to burn so you know it's uh, there's those sort of indicators are the same for potentially water is you know is it at a certain species might means a certain aquatic species you know a fish a, a sustenance species is, is on the move and it's time to go catch them but when you get down to the river in a regulated system the water's not there and i suppose that's that's the challenge and that that, that were the things that i was trying to influence in, in flow management especially is that cultural knowledge can play a part in water delivery, but also, you know, if an environmental flow is trying to mimic a pre-development flow, wouldn't Aboriginal knowledge be a great wouldn't source it be of it the only
0: reference? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you think so, but you think so, but that's the challenge is that we can't validate it. You know, there's there's no way to, and, and I suppose, Fire ecology has come a long way of linking traditional knowledge and and ecology, but you know there's still always going to be those clashes. And I think water management, I'm going to have those same hurdles as well. Is it you know I you know there's you know it might be a some of the experiences I had. You know there's a community that had a an event every year based on the flowering of a plant, and and the rains would come, and that means upstream and the waters water is actually moving in the river and i suppose you go there but as i said in a regulated system they haven't opened the the dam gates um the dam wall so to, to release that water because no one's ordered it or the environmental flow is not required then so to a point our knowledge has to evolve and adapt and it has you know it's in a modern modern world we're still here and our knowledge is adapting and evolving as well so that that's something I'd like to explore as well because, you know, our, a lot of our knowledge was lost and was taken from from us. And, I, and you know, some of my, one of my uncles always said, you know, you've just got to get back out there and start listening to the, you know, to the environment and the animals and because a lot of our stories are still there, we just haven't found them yet. And they've just laid dormant because they were taken from us. So when you think about, so my mum's generation, you know, they were they were the generation that, you know, mum would grow up in the bush in western New South Wales or northwestern New South Wales and, you know, she left school at year eight or second form back then and was taught how to clean white people's houses. You know, that's what happened back then. And, you know, and grandparents and great-grandparents weren't, weren't allowed to speak language and, and weren't allowed to pass on and I suppose those sort of things were lost Sometimes, sometimes those stories may have been transcribed by a, you know, a missionary or a surveyor or a, or a mission manager, you know, or a police, police person or, um, but a lot of the times, or anthropologists that they traveled around, uh, but a lot of times they've written that story from their perspective, not from an Aboriginal perspective. And I suppose that's the other thing I want to try and influence as well is a lot of non-Aboriginal people in the water space say what's good for Aboriginal people and what's missing but I suppose is there's not many Aboriginal voices saying what's good for Aboriginal people Um, and one day you know hopefully I can become one of those voices that that you know advocates for what Aboriginal people want and how we want to do it rather than you know you know, I suppose there's a lot of people out there that support us, but, you know, I think it's it's in our best interest that we step up to the plate as well and and take charge of this space because it's, um, you know, caring for water and caring for country is a cultural obligation where <laughs> Aboriginal people are here on, on in Australia. That's part of our existence is to care for country and, you know, even unfortunately some of the science says that we're happy and healthier when we're caring for country. So it's um, there, there, there's validation that we should be, you know, and these rager programs that are happening, which are fantastic and people on country, they're going to be happy and healthier. And I suppose they're, they're part of these industries growing industries that they can actually look after Australia and make Australia look good. Um, and. Hmm. Yeah.
0: It's, just have a million thoughts in my brain right now and I'm thinking about for example the kind of difficulty of being able to articulate the values that you're talking about from the Aboriginal perspective in the policy fora and I'm thinking in particular about the exercise with the First Peoples Water Engagement Council where a room full of amazing just high-level Aboriginal scientists and activists and um, spokes spokespeople were trying to just come up with a definition for what is indigenous water do you remember that
1: yeah yeah do
0: you remember how it was so hard to just work within the language and come up with something that made complete sense that was fully comprehensive and that encapsulated all the sort of meaning behind this and and we couldn't do it like we, we couldn't
1: uh, no and i think that's, that sort of shows the diversity of Aboriginal knowledge and, and I suppose that there's, that we're, we're not all the same. <laughs> and no. I think that was the thing, you know, we went there with a, trying to answer, you know, can we define a cultural flow? Cause, you know, water planners and water managers just wanted one simple definition, you know, come on, all the Aboriginal people get together, come up with a definition for cultural flows or Aboriginal water. And it just couldn't happen because, you know, you're sitting there, a, a cultural flow, all right, okay. And then you've got um, Uncle George there from Cooper saying, I don't see no culture flowing. <laughs> I don't <laughs> see no water flowing in Coober <laughs> And I suppose that term didn't mean anything to him. So how can that be a national definition when, you know, people, you know, Australia's 70% semi-arid, you know, so there's not going to be always surface water flowing in all parts of the country. So a cultural flow per se is not going to mean anything to them, you know? So I suppose that was the, the big setback for cultural flow definition and the cultural flow becomes very surface water orientated. It has no linkages to desert or, or groundwater. Nice. Um, groundwater does flow in, you know, some of the spring country, but I suppose it's, it's, uh it's more about surface water orientation of a cultural flow. And I think, if that's the case, then that that's fine. But I suppose we need other other options for our for our poorly forgotten groundwater people or desert people, you know, so that they don't usually get that voice. So what is, what does water mean to them? And when you think about it, water is highly significant for those sort of people because it's so sparse and it's so rare to find water as in you know central Australia or the Western Desert or you know. So I suppose. Knowing where, and that's the other bit of the, that, that excited me about our knowledge is, you know, the finding and refinding water in, in, in such a dry place, you know, that all, all, the, all, the act, all the, I suppose, procedures that Aboriginal people had in place to find and refine water, you know, it was, it was through law, it was through song, it was through dance, art, so I suppose they all influenced their knowledge of water, and it was certain people that got to know those stories and they, it was their responsibility to, to retell those stories and teach them and pass them on. And that's the bit that, you know, excited me. You know, when I was doing my master's research, I come across a, a paper. It was in the, There was an anthropologist with the Bintubi mob in Central Australia and, you know, got to know one of the old people and the old, the, one of the old men gave him a, a spear thrower, and on the back was engraved a lot of these concentric circles. And each circle had a name. I think it was about fifty-one of them from memory. And each circle had its own name in the, in Pintubi language. And the anthropologist had to learn them all. And then the old man gave it to him, and he said, "Now that is every waterhole in my country." And you're in it. So you're in the central desert. And he's giving you uh, like a GIS layer of yeah, all the water Yeah, on, on the back of the stick. Amazing key yeah. to
0: where the water is in a place that everybody yeah. else is like, oh, there's no water here. No
1: water here, yeah, move on. <laughs> go back to the coast. <laughs> um, so, you know, that, that, was, that was really cool to find that. And um, I think that sort of knowledge just – and to a point, sadly, a lot of that knowledge does go to the grave these days and there is a bit of there is in you know some communities have got their got, got got into gear and have those processes and some have maintained those cultural links between you know the older generation and the next generation and the young generation of passing on knowledge being an oral tradition oral tradition based and song tradition based culture you know there are some communities that you know are, are still doing that and still doing it strong but you know, when you think about the East Coast, a lot of those connections are gone, and you know there's that disconnection of young people and old people, and you know it's it, it's something. And I think caring for country and caring for water, I believe anyway, that it, it that's a way of getting the young people back sitting next to the old people listening, because um, the future is is in their hands. And I suppose if if we don't pass on if we don't allow that opportunity for that knowledge to be passed on, that then, then that knowledge is lost. And you know, I suppose that's why a lot of our a lot of our people are lost, especially <coughs> especially growing up in urban environments. You know, you you don't really have that connection to country if you're not on your own country. Uh, with you know, we're a very transient people. And yeah. um, but I suppose when they when the frontier moved across, you know, the missions and reserves were set up and people were pushed from their country into these places. And, you know, a lot of the times they weren't allowed to speak and look at certain people because they were too similar in skin or, or, or bloodline. So I suppose that went out the door and language was lost. Um,
0: in terms of best practices of like merging or shifting worldviews or the incorporation of traditional indigenous knowledge to in- address indigenous values for water, where do you see these best practices coming up? Do you see really good examples? I mean, for example, I was quite impressed recently with the new Victoria water plan that came out. Um, It's very sad to hear that New South Wales isn't putting the same momentum behind these sorts of initiatives, but it looks like Victoria is is stepping it up and really trying to do some sort of authentic engagement with traditional owners that is very impressive.
1: Yeah, well, that's the thing is um, I think they're um, – I think Victorian number plates say on the move and I think they're definitely on the move in Aboriginal engagement and acknowledgement in the water space. So I suppose that water plan and, you know, it, it's sort of sad to see New South Wales go down this path, but Victoria has actually um, take, you know, that they're going to potentially take the lead in – in this space you know New South Wales was well and truly advanced and into it and just like that they've, they've you know New South Wales has gone back to the pack and Victoria's definitely stepped up and become leaders in this space and you know I'm it's it's I suppose it's a bit of testimony to what the Aboriginal Water Initiative did is that you know they've they're there they're establishing an Aboriginal Water Unit in Victoria and I'm working with them Part and parcel, given them a lot of resources on how we established what we did, the mistakes we made, the improvements that we could make. And I suppose it's, you know, it's, it's very sad that New South Wales is just simple as that is just going to destroy five years of, of hard work and, and all that corporate knowledge, community knowledge, trust, partnerships, and I suppose Victoria my big advice to Victoria would be don't make the same mistake, you know, and make sure it's entrenched in, in the system and, you know, it can't be easily eroded out, you know. There's no weaseling out with, if there's a change of government or something like that, you know. And if it's in a water plan for five years, make sure that the next review has it even stronger. And, um, you know, I, I applaud Victoria on that. And, you know, they're there they're there just starting their journey um, and I suppose you know I'll be there to help them as much as I can to to make sure that they, they can get the best you know I suppose the biggest the biggest aim would be to make sure Aboriginal people benefit from water, not just just on paper. Um, you know they've got I think they've got 4.7 million to s- establish an Aboriginal water unit and they've got five million to actually look at water entitlements for Aboriginal people. and that's something New South Wales, we could never do, um, you know, it's it's written into the objects of the Act uh, that Aboriginal people will be engaged and have a role in water management, but I suppose when it comes down to the actual action, we, we hit a lot of barriers because New South Wales is, especially west of the Great Dividing Range uh, inland, it's, you know, it's either fully allocated or over allocated, so there's no opportunities for Aboriginal people to engage in the market unless they buy water on the open market and a lot of the you know when you speak to the elders why you know they're saying why should i buy my water um and that's the bit that they can't comprehend is that you know the separation of land and water that's another thing they can't comprehend is that you know land and water have to be there together um but i suppose when they you know the national water initiative for the separation of land and water so water became a tradable commodity, and it was a, it was market-driven. And I suppose that, again, is locking Aboriginal people out of the water market because water is quite expensive to buy on the market. Mm-hmm. In in wet times, you know, you might be able to buy some water um, at, a, at a decent rate, but when it's dry, you know, water is, you know, it's like liquid gold now. Um, if you have water in dry times, you know, you can get quite rich off it. but And if Aboriginal people don't have that opportunity... Or don't have. They might have the land, but they don't have the water. So it, they're almost locked out of that market straight away because you know they might be land rich but money poor. Um, and I suppose that's that was something that we tried to look at internally was to, to to try and establish ways or access points for Aboriginal people to get water. You know, there were a cu- couple of licensing opportunities, but they were cultural grounds and they were small qual- quantities. But you know, is there opportunities for retired water or the water that's given back to the market? Can average people have a, have a say in that? Or is it, you know, do we have to look at philanthropic water? Um, that's starting to pop up now in Australia where there's uh, groups establishing themselves and they're getting philanthropic money and corporate money to back them to buy water and they're looking at environmental outcomes with that water and I suppose they're becoming their own environmental water holder. And, like, you know, I'd love to see one day, you know, that, well, Victoria might get to that point where they've got an ab- Aboriginal water holder. Yeah, That'd that's what I
0: was thinking too, is about the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder and is there some sort of scope to get that model tweaked or merged yeah, or about, something?
1: they're bound by the Water Act and they always say, um, I've always been told, a number, well, many a times, that they can't actually cater for cultural values. They can... They can cater for cultural values in a non-direct way. Right. If there's cultural values that are catered for in environmental flow, that's a dual outcome. but they can't actually target environmental water under the Water Act for cultural values. So I suppose that's something also I want to test with the doctorate is is looking at can there be an opportunity to you know to run a, a test scenario where Aboriginal knowledge influences one flow, and ecological environmental knowledge influence you know influences another flow and we see what the outcomes are if they 're the same that 's fine yep. but if there are differences I want to look you know because I suppose we do find that a lot of these environmental flows are targeting ecological outcomes yes and while I was with the department you know we sat with uh, another de- uh, department office of environment and heritage who looks after environmental order in New South Wales and you know, we're starting to build those relationships with linking cultural, and environmental, where there are similarities and the same outcomes. And you know, I suppose that's you know, we 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 sometimes we want the same species um, benefiting from those environmental flows and cultural cultural outcomes. So you know, it could be a. I suppose that's what we're asking communities: what are your significant species? And it could be. You know, it could be the brolger turning up at a wetland, and that is a good sign because, you know, the brolger is one of the most copied um, birds in in dance. And I suppose if you've got the brolger in your wetland because of an environmental flow, you're going to get a, an environmental outcome, and it, then it nests and mates and all that sort of stuff. You're getting an ecological outcome, but you're also getting a cultural outcome. Um, another example is... You know, the, the community say, look, we just want to catch a cod. How do you get to that point where you actually catch a cod that is legal and you can actually eat it? You know, it's a dinner, dinner plate size cod. Mm. Um, you know, but the, the lead-up to that is water quality, water quantity, timing, um, you know, getting rid of pest species. And I suppose to get from that point of saying I want to catch a fish that I can eat, to that point, you know, is there's a, there's, there's a lot of steps in between. And, you know, it could be over a number of years, but I suppose that's where I think the um, – and Aboriginal people say, look, you know, there was a flower this time of year and then the, the acacia might have flowered and that means the cod's running or, you know, it's time to go catch a cod. But it, what are those things that actually link traditional and Western science together? How, where's that meeting point? And I suppose that's something I want to explore as well. And, you know, I, I – Probably hasn't been really done that well in the, in the water management space um, but I suppose it's something I'm, I'm keen to, to explore as well and you know and, and that's the thing we don't we don't really have that credible evidence uh, to, to back up the knowledge and that's something I want to also so you, you, can, you can bang on the table and say this is my, my right to water because this is what the science says. Yeah, I, and I think that to a point as we as we move forward in this space, there's there are opportunities to actually, you know, I'd like traditional knowledge to influence and you know work side by side, and but I suppose you need Western science to to acknowledge the importance of traditional knowledge, and I suppose that that's something that just doesn't happen uh, at the moment. I just gotta um and I suppose we're, we're always trying to. F- and I'm finding that we're always just trying to fit into to Western yes. Western management systems. We're just we don't get that opportunity to actually lead something and we don't have control over that. We're just got to oh all oh, right right, we're just got to fit into this. We don't really have a say. Oh, okay. So it's just that's the frustrating thing is we don't actually get that opportunity to lead something, run it, manage it, deliver it evaluate it you know there's just no yeah we just don't get that opportunity especially in the water space because of what water is these days
0: or even the opportunity to drive the priorities for the environmental research to move forward from an indigenous values perspective as opposed to the indigenous values constantly trying to catch up with and um, support the other initiatives that are happening it's like why can't they set the agenda yeah, and find yeah, ways exactly. to bring the environmental yeah. community on board yeah. through the steps.
1: Yeah, 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 and that, that's that, you know, like even back when the National Water Commission was around, you know, they, you know, they had a huge bucket of money and they had the opportunity to do a lot of things. And being on the First Peoples Water Engagement Council, one of my sort of pet hates was seeing this multi-million-dollar report being delivered, and you know, the National Water Commission going out there and promoting it. And writing a paper on it, but it never had an Aboriginal objective in it. And there we were first peoples and there was I was constantly requesting that Aboriginal, you know, terms of reference should be up front in a contract, you know, and then you always push someone and they say, Oh no, it's out of scope, or oh, we don't have the funds for that and it's always it never happens and I suppose that's that's the culture of of research needs to change as well, is that, you know, in indigenous um terms of reference or Indigenous principles need to be up front when a tender goes out for contract, you know, and I think that's what governments aren't doing and, you know, that was sort of the frustrating bit being on First People is that, you know, you just, we just weren't in those reports and we should have been.
0: And that seems almost like a no-brainer because you have a lot of other clauses that are right there up front that do almost state an ethical foundation that needs to be at the basis of moving forward with any project. And, and it surprises me at this stage
1: yeah. that that's not there.
0: <laughs> that's just yeah. actually kind of shocking. But um, <laughs> wow, <laughs> that needs to change then, fast.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. that's right. And I suppose, and if we don't have people infiltrating on the inside, you know, to, to change that, that culture of not, in, you know, not including those sort of principles, in you know, nothing's going to change, or or we don't have those people that want to support us, um, you know, in, in government and and private. That you know, there are good people out there, no doubt, like yourself, you know, that that do push that agenda and ask the, ask the questions. But it's you know, they're they're few and far between. And I suppose being in an in, in indigenous scientist too, you know, it's quite lonely. You're on your own a lot. Yeah. You don't have that network of people and um i'm just trying to establish you know networks now with a couple other professional sort of um societies you know to try and influence their way of thinking you know there was you know the Australian Society of Genealogy just had a earlier this in September had a an indigenous focused stream at their conference in Ballarat you know and that was fantastic to see and i suppose that's going to happen every year now and that that's a that's a change in their thinking. And, you know, we – I was lucky enough to, to be a keynote there in in that session. You yeah, know, that was a great honour. But then again, I had a new set of ears to talk to. Um, and I suppose that that's uh, – if I keep talking, uh, you know, one day someone's going to listen. Um, <laughs> one day. Oh, and getting those opportunities at the International River Symposium, you know, um, they're priceless, you know, because you've got an international audience as well as local local ears listening. Um, and what was the other thing? Oh, yeah, I went to Society of Environmental Toxicology and Chemistry Conference in Singapore, and they had an Indigenous-sponsored session, and they had actually Indigenous, um, like, uh, scholarship or awards, travel awards, you know. So they actually opened it up. They had a session And now, you know, I'm working with Indigenous people around the world of establishing an Indigenous Knowledge and Values interest group within SeaTac. So little things are starting to happen, but it, you know, I suppose it's, if you want to make change, you've got to do it yourself as well.
0: Yeah, but it also sounds like a lot of work. I mean, it's fantastic, these initiatives, but you're only one person. um,
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. It's hard to say no. (laughs) It's hard,
0: especially when it's so important.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I just want to also briefly touch on strategic Indigenous reserves up in Queensland and um, get your take on that approach, because that is a totally different approach that they're taking up there in Queensland. And it's, again, it's trying to take, let's see, identify Indigenous reserves for economic value and have them apply and make some water and resources available for that initiative but at the same time it's like look it's not for entirely for economic purposes it's also for just the necessity of having those flows be there which is a very different than the way that the structure is set up that's just my take on it from a research perspective but do you see that there's any merit or any opportunity because when it first came out it seemed like there was tremendous opportunity and it just seems to have sort of sat there. Uh, yeah. and do you know if there's anything going on with that, or if that 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 approach is, has value for other states or other areas?
1: Yeah, look, I I think that all started in in you know with the the NALSMA, uh group. You know they they were heavily funded to do a lot of this work under the National Water Commission, um, adv- well funding I suppose sources. But it, you know they came up with a lot of areas where there was. High Aboriginal land tenure, but also Aboriginal occupation, and it came up with those strategic Indigenous strategic Indigenous reserves, and the Northern Territory government at that point was heading down that path. And then obviously you get a change in leadership, and that change in leadership just red penned it. It's you know, it was one of the first things that he did was actually red penned the SIRs, and I suppose at that point, you know, that was oh, maybe five or six years ago, and, you know, Northern Territory just took a huge leap in identifying water for Aboriginal people and, I suppose, identifying that reserve for Aboriginal people and then leaving it up to those Aboriginal people to determine the governance of that water. You know, it sh- they shouldn't be told how to use that water. It's up to them to actually identify how they want to use that water. It could be just, yeah, yeah, and then make sure that that flow stays in that system and we'll trade some of that other temporary trade, some of that other water, and we'll generate some revenue. And I suppose, you know, that's that's that would have been, you know, a great outcome. But I suppose, again, you know, the wrong part of the political cycle someone comes in and just strikes it out. And I think Queensland I'm not I haven't kept up, but I think a lot of that the Queensland SIRs was linked to the wild rivers. And I'm not sure if the wild rivers was repealed um because what queensland did they brought in a clause um a basic it was like a basic right into their water act which was great and um and a conservative government too that implemented it was um it was like a, a cultural right to water so you can actually interact and extract what you need for your cultural purposes um we actually put that forward in new south wales but we're told it wasn't the right time um, and I think when is the right time? Another 200 years, maybe? Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I recently, I think last week, I read a report that came out of the American Geophysical Union saying that by 2050, 1.8 billion people will no longer have groundwater resources. They will either be depleted or nearly depleted. Um, and Australia is also looking at that. So I think, yeah, 20 years? No. <laughs> yeah I can't we can't sit with that that's not that's not right, but this yeah, issue uh, around like political cycles that are just constantly shifting priorities and throwing out a lot of work that has been done and built upon is a serious issue and we've seen it since political systems were initiated and put into place yes. um but is there a yeah. way to sort of work past that or work around it? I mean you have to I'm sure get it into national legislation i mean there's I guess there's there's political ways to do that, but just seems like we need a shift of mentality almost
1: yeah like but that's the thing like it's it's been yeah as you said been happening since the first government ever governed <laughs> you know is it it's just a political a political difference, and what happens is it it just um thinks that, you know, that might have been the past government's idea, but it's not ours because it was the past government's, so we're going to get rid of it, you know. That's the thing. It might be the best thing in the world, but it's a political difference that strikes it out. Um, And I think, yeah, you need that. I don't think you'll ever actually get, you know, there's, there's few things that have survived between governments. You know, that might be the best idea, but I think especially in this space, um where Aboriginal people are well down the in New, in New south Wales that is you know Aboriginal people are well down the list of, of water users, even though you know the the land councils Aboriginal land councils in New South Wales h- hold a lot of land in New south Wales they're still not seen as a, as a water user or a stakeholder in this in in the debate you know it 's mainly the because you've got the noisy the noise the squeaky wheel gets the oil and the that squeaky wheel is you know the irrigators and water those sort of water, the users. water
0: users yeah yeah,
1: yeah. yeah.
0: so well, it's, it, um, it kind of goes back to the the idea of having a um, indigenous water holder or something uh, an institutional water holder that's able to bring everyone together and and advocate for the necessity of of cultural water cultural values cuz Otherwise it's just going to be redlined out or thrown out with the next plan or yeah. the next cycle. Yeah. just again and again. Cause if you think about it, there's been so much in the last 10 years, there's been so many different approaches that have been applied and so much thinking that's gone into this and so much progress that's been made. But when every time that progress gets thrown out the window, well, what's the point? That's got to be quite disheartening.
1: Yeah. 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 And that's right. And it, especially for Indigenous leaders too you know like they're they're um they're dealing with their own issues in their own backyard and they can't and when they say something nationally it might might be a local issue but the media national position you know and I think that's the challenge is that you know whenever you speak in public like all those you know the committees I'm on I can only speak of what my you know what what my elders allow me to say you know I can't I'm not speaking on behalf of all Aboriginal people in Australia. You know, you know, you'd be crucified. Um, and that's what happens to, to Indigenous leaders that, that make a statement in, a, you know, the Australian newspaper and then all of a sudden that's what all Aboriginal people think. But it's, it's far from it. They might be speaking locally, you know, from their own community, which, you know, they should clarify and, you know, say, you know, this, I'm only speaking for my mob. I can't speak for everyone else. And, you know, that's, that's sometimes the mistake some of those leaders make is that, you know, you need that sort of clarification up front and, you know, I've developed a few things at a national level and, you know, I've made sure that I've always said that, you know, now I've got this approved by my by my people, my elders, and the committee then has to go out to broader Aboriginal Australia and get it approved. You know, that's not my job. Mm. I've helped you get to a point, now you've got to actually go nationally and, and get it get it authorised because... I only got it authorised by my people, that was it.
0: But it seems like when something is authorised at a national level, it doesn't get shifted out of place with the next couple of years because it's it's gone through a pretty thorough process yeah. Yeah. of serious consensus building. <laughs> so it sticks yeah. around. Yeah. And, yeah. I'm wondering um, about what you might see as being the top issues or the most important challenges that practitioners and researchers who are interested in being more involved and supporting the work that you're doing to make headway in this area should be maybe focusing on or looking to? Any thoughts?
1: Um, I suppose it's... I think I, I sort of mentioned earlier that, you know, there are a lot of non-Aboriginal people saying what's good for Aboriginal people, but I suppose it's... they're, they're I believe, you know, their heart's in the right place and they want to make that change, they want to make that influence policy, they want to make that difference because potentially the Aboriginal people they're dealing with are not in that space that they can, can actually influence. Um, but I suppose it's, you know, it's if, if you're an upcoming researcher and you've got an interest in that, I suppose it's building a relationship with the community, but I suppose you've you've got to do that culturally appropriately. Like when we had... The Aboriginal Water Unit we had to establish relationships sometimes some of the team members already had a relationship so that was our foot in the door sometimes we had to work cold you know a cold call or, you know it's a lot of cups of tea you got to have before you can actually start a conversation on water values you know so it's it and government's got to understand that it, it's just not that easy you can't work to a tight time frame to to work with and Know, Aboriginal knowledge system and communities to get the answers you want because um, – and that well, that's the other trap researchers do fall into sometimes is that they go to a community with a question they want answered rather than going to the community, building a relationship and identifying the question with them. Um, I find that is – you know, that has, has happened a lot and people have got, you know, masters and degrees and PhDs from Aboriginal knowledge and I suppose – what I want to try and influence in this, you know, this little part-time job is to make sure that Aboriginal people might get the opportunity to co-author papers, become part of the research community. Um, and, you know, I'm always ever trying to influence the the STEM side of, because Aboriginal people in science don't really connect. Mm. And as I said earlier, it's pretty lonely as a, um, there's a, there's a few of us out there, but I suppose I'd love to see more and, influencing that next generation to, to consider science or, or natural resource management or um, yeah, any of those sort of, those caring for country sort of scenarios. And I think if Aboriginal people get a say in those research questions, they get input throughout the whole process. They then get on the authorship of journals or reports then I suppose we're actually doing our bit. But at the moment, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people have benefited from Aboriginal knowledge and I suppose it, that needs to, to, to turn around and obviously we need to start acknowledging that knowledge. But, you know, individuals stay individual, whereas Aboriginal people think about, they're always thinking about community first, you know, what's the best for my mob? And um, and I think if if they're part of those research questions in the planning stage, in the data collection, in the report writing, in the results and the conclusions and the papers, then I think that world has changed, but I think we're a long way from that.
0: So what it, what I'm hearing also is that there's really a need for um, science, technology, STEM education for the up and coming Aboriginal generation and a real maybe concerted effort focusing on empowering them and building their capacity in the space because really they are going to be the next leaders. Um, we can do what we can, but, uh, you know, you get to a certain age and you have to have a career and you have to support your family, but really yeah. using the, those principles and the education so that they have that knowledge to be able to grow into that and get inspired like you did with science, um, and, and grow into professional roles that do take leadership in terms of science and, and, and their community is probably a really key element. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Because it's, um, I do what I can with, you know, the universities that I've been with, you know, they um, where I did my undergrad, you know, they, they've used and abused me and I love it. But you know, that's the thing is that if I can just get that one, aboriginal young person to think yeah i want to do science because brad did it you know that that's 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 a big tick for me a big win for me i've heard it a few times and you know that that, that means a lot to me but i suppose it's it's how um how can we better influence and like australia's falling behind in stem altogether and i suppose when we think about indigenous australians in stem we're, we're well and truly fallen behind so i suppose it's I do what I can to try and influence, you know, when they, when those kids are, you know, year nine, year ten, heading into senior high school, try and think about taking a science pathway because when I give my story, you know, I suppose that's what I try and do as well is, is give my experiences. You know, I get to sit down and listen to some of the oldest stories on the planet, you know, that have been around for thousands of generations and I suppose how that's it. I get then to protect those those stories and obviously um, come up with policy decisions that actually can protect them, and uh, you know that was that was another exciting bit for me is that you know you just get that opportunity to to listen and then make a difference you know so it's it's um, I think it's it's something that I, I enjoy doing but yeah I'm finding less and less time to do. <laughs> Uh, get seem to be giving a lot, but not getting a lot back, unfortunately. Mm.
0: <sighs> it's a tough situation. It's thankless sometimes, but it's... Like yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the kind of, I guess, the fruits of your labor will only be evident in hopefully future generations. You know, it's, yeah. it's
1: difficult. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, like, my son is in Year 7, and I oh, just finished Year 7, and, um, you know, he had a water... Water assignment for his science. Now, if he didn't get an A, there'd be a lot of questions asked. <laughs> and he got an A, which was good. <laughs>
0: what did he do it on? <laughs>
1: um, oh, he had a, he had a set topic, um, and uh, the whole class did. And you know, he had to do it, and then he had to give an oral presentation as well. So it was it was a um, a big win for us oh, and a proud moment for me. Yes.
0: Oh, congratulations! That's great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but then again, you know, like he's if he takes on science that's great. But if he doesn't, you know, if he wants to do something else, you know, I'll support him in that. But you know, that that push for science will always be there for him and my daughter.
0: Yes, and I, I think a lot of times there isn't that I guess that window of opportunity to jump in and get involved in science. When yeah. you're in certain yeah. schools, or you know, th- this is really typical with math. They say, you know, if you don't have a good math teacher, you're going to hate math. And and yeah, exactly. math is great. <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah, it's like a fun puzzle. But if you don't have that teacher who shows you that it can be yeah. really exciting and satisfying, then you just don't yeah. like math and you shut down. And science yeah. is very much the same, I think.
1: Yeah, and I, oh, look, I think that's that's true. You know, you. I've, you know, you probably experienced it. I've experienced it growing up. You know, you have that one bad teacher and it can put you off. Oh, yeah. Can put you, yeah, yeah. But, you know, sometimes it might not be their fault, but it's just, you know, it's, it, it's, it's something that you can only do what you can while you're at home with them and give them that opportunity to, to, you know, to grow to love something or, or understand it. And I think it's, um, that's part of the, the challenges of being a, a grown up. One of the many (laughs) One of the many, that's right
0: Cool, well thank you so much Bad for taking the time, it's been wonderful to speak with you and to hear your perspective and your challenges and and hopefully with everyone listening to um, be able to get some insight in how we can support this amazing challenge i guess that that you're facing and that all of australia is really facing i think there's a lot you've provided a lot of different opportunities for shifting just shifting a little bit but in a permanent way as opposed to a short-term policy way how we can incorporate um just aboriginal values overall and and sensitivities into everything we do so thank you very much
1: no problem at all Keeney is an initiative of the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Keeney connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific. Visit our website at keeney.org.au for more
0: information and for videos, articles, news and more.